So Daniel, I think we have a culprit in LaughGate. I've determined after extensive research what's been going on. It turns out our delightful gap year interns slash podcast editor extraordinaire have been editing out you laughing in response to my jokes (laughs) to make me sound not funny when in fact I'm hilarious. So I think in this edition of the podcast, we're going to get as much canned laughter as possible. Otherwise, our, our little interns might not be interns for too much longer. Yeah, you see that small pause there? That was actually filled with me guffawing, but sadly, it's already been edited out by our wonderful producers. That's a real shame. It's a real shame. Th- thank you. Thank you, Joe and Hannah, for all your dedicated hard work. Please don't make us sound terrible. <laughs> Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matt Glesh and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, and Michael Turner, Head of Research at CT Group's Research and Strategy Business based in Australia, and a Fellow of the Adam Smith Institute. This week, we'll be discussing new polling on the Australia-UK trade deal, the great political realignment, and selling free markets. New polling from the Adam Smith Institute and CT Group has smashed the myth that Brits oppose free trade. We've found strong backing for a comprehensive free trade deal with Australia that abolishes tariffs and quotas, as well as boosting investment and even allowing people to live and work across countries. So I guess coming to you first, Michael, on this with the kind of key takeaways from the polling, what are the the key findings that we, we've discovered here and who's the most and, and least supportive when it comes to this trade deal? Uh, well, I think the interesting thing about this was actually just how consistent the support was actually across the groups. I think the myth that's been peddled is that the public in Britain want to protect farmers without necessarily specifying why. And I think you know, turning this on its head, it's really been more about the Brits wanting the farmers to seize that opportunity with this free trade deal. You know, they like key tenants of the deal. That's very clear. And it's equally supported in Australia as well. So, you know, they're excited about it. The There was this myth being peddled around in parts of the media, surprising parts of the media also about standards. And, you know, it's great when you do polls like these because you never really know what you're going to get. And when the results came back in, Brits and Australians feel that the standards of animal welfare and produce and also kind of the professionals in both based in both countries is really high. And that relationship is kind of key to driving the reason why they want this deal. And Matthew, we saw the discussion last week on the podcast about this standards question and how there's, again, some sections of the media being, I think, overly concerned with the idea that there's a difference in animal welfare standards or, or how we, we treat animals and between the Australia and the UK, but that doesn't seem to have actually been reflected in public opinion, right? And, and they're not wrong, are they? There's definitely um, a myth being peddled here by those who oppose the free trade deal. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right, Daniel. So, so what Michael found, and he led on this project doing the polling, both uh, 1,500 people in Australia and the UK are broadly representative sample of both populations was the the fact that basically the Brits believe that Australia has high animal welfare and safety standards. They are very happy to consume more Australian beef and lamb and wine 
not as happy to consume kangaroo, but some of them definitely want some kangaroo as well. Count me in. And and <laughs> it, it kind of shows that whilst obviously for their kind of self-interested reasons, farmers might want to protect their industry, there's actually not a lot of interest in that from the British people. It's kind of easy to, and this is something that was quite ambitious in this polling, is we didn't just ask, well, do you support the trade deal in theory? We really went into a lot of detail about asking which elements of the deal they might be interested in the most and the least, as well as giving them the trade-off. So I think perhaps the, the key takeaway on this particular point was when we gave people what what we think is quite a reasonable trade-off. We said, you can have a trade deal that will mean more consumer choice, mean free movement, but could actually lead to more competition farmers and might lead some of those farmers to go out of business. That was option one. Option two was no trade deal, no benefits, but protect the farmers. And what we found is that 60% of people would prefer the trade deal, even in the knowledge that there was a risk that some could go out of business. And that the key question here is about competition, which is the British people, and we saw this in later questions, were happy at the idea that British farmers compete globally on a relatively level playing field rather than be protected from competition. That they want British farmers to go out there into the world. They don't want a kind of little Britain British farmer who only tries to sell domestically, which of course isn't practically going to work anyway because Britain needs imported food. It's 40, 50% of food in this country is imported. So in, in, in some, it really showed a very positive message about free trade when you properly present people what the trade-offs and what the options are. Yeah, I, I was really surprised by this, to be honest, because the, the cynic and the defeatist in me, I guess, thought that actually that there would be a lot more support for, for kind of protectionism around farming. And it turns out that that's not the case. And this is, this is even despite quite a high profile campaign that's been run from the National Farmers Union around this deal. Uh, so I guess the, the question for me that comes up is why is it that, you know, the British public are actually, even when presented with, I think, a fair representation of the trade-offs, still pro-free trade? What is this reflected in wider attitudes? The key is the context with this. It's actually, when we I do public opinion so many different kind of types of subjects and no more probably you know industry than something which is relatively not well known like this is the context key you know if we maybe asked the same question perhaps about china free trade deal maybe the answer of response would have been different right this is possibly the easiest free trade deal to do you know the personal connections that brits have with australians is very high but also, I think that, you know, ultimately, Brits see Australia as a country which has equally high standards as theirs. And they understand that Australian beef is good quality beef. They love Australian wine. They you know buy a heck of a lot of Australian wine. And so I think from that perspective, there has been a myth. I think that the industry haven't been peddling the, the right story on this one. I think going back to the points that kind of Matthew made about the the interesting thing about some of the items that were kind of that we wanted to see, the most possibly the most interesting piece of polling that I saw from this was what was the alternative that was wanted to British beef, and most people actually majority basically picked Australian beef over beef imported from the EU. Now, possibly that is going to be because they see this deal as more than just about trade of produce, actually. It's about connecting kind of like-minded people. And we can't kind of shake that out of this as well. And, and that's kind of then also fed back in the, the polling on people wanting to build a holiday in Australia. Australians want to build a holiday in Britain. 
you've got a large diaspora of Brits that are living and working in Australia and so forth. Yeah, and I, I imagine this also kind of fits in with the broader Brexit narrative and global Britain narrative quite well as well, because well, you know, you, you mentioned it's certainly true that Brits are, are more familiar with, say, Australian wine. They have lots of Australian friends. You know, they, their Australian friends have high standards. They, they that's true of the EU as well, right? Um, we, we've got a lot of familiarity over decades of trade and use of EU goods and, and services and products and whatnot. But it seems like Brits would actually prefer to trade, according to this polling, with Australia even over the the EU. So there, there is, I imagine, a, a kind of global Britain Brexit angle to this yeah. as well, Matthew. Yeah, I think there's a strong sense of affinity between the two countries that's coming out. You have uh, large numbers of people who, if they don't want a holiday in Australia, they certainly know someone who, either through family or friends, who lives in Australia and vice versa for that matter. There's, there's It's worth remembering that there are 1.2 million Brits in Australia and that's more Brits in Australia than in the entire EU so that there's, there's a huge amount of, of people transfer or, as I once heard Tony Abbott say, used to send your finest convicts to Australia back in the good old days. And, and it's kind of gone through since then. But yeah, but I, I think it's at the simplest level, there's a crossover, obviously, the, the same head of state for, for better or for worse, as we've discussed previously, the similar parliamentary system, similar culture and values, both two kind of striving liberal democracies. But I really think there's a there's a broader narrative here. I know we've been speaking a lot about farming, and farming is uh, one part of the deal. And it's probably the most controversial part of the deal, but it's probably not the most important part of the deal. There's so many other elements to the Australia-UK relationship beyond agriculture, particularly when it comes to services. We saw in this poll, there's a lot of interest in making it easier for things like tech and financial services to work across borders. We saw interest in recognising qualifications. 73% of people don't think that an Australian nurse should have to re-qualify as they currently do to practice in the UK. We saw interest in, in freer movement to live and work and study in each other's countries. It's worth noting the UK is the second largest source of inbound business investment into Australia. You have major companies like BHP, which is listed across both the, the UK and Australian stock exchanges. A lot of British companies use Australia as a, a launching pad into the Asia-Pacific market and, and in reverse, a lot of major Australian business, I think like Macquarie or ANZ, major banks use London as a launching pad in uh, across the EU. So there is a, a much broader, more interesting, deeper story when it comes to services trade in particular, which is the, the core of our modern economies that really stands out in the Australia-UK trade deal. And in that, in these particular cases, there's really nothing for anyone to lose. Whilst farming gets a lot of controversy, it's a relatively small part of the deal and there's much a broader interest. Now, obviously, there's a lot of, of support for this in Australia as well, as we've mentioned. But one of the other things that we kind of looked at here is Australia's trading relationship with China, which is decidedly less cordial or, or less supported, shall we say, than the UK one. And what's the kind of the story behind that? Because I imagine a lot of British listeners might not be following Australia's trade relations with China quite as closely. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting story. I certainly think that the, for context, Australians are far more aware of Australia's you know, reliance on exports compared to Britain. It is definitely something which is a bit more deep-seated. Um, Brits also probably recognise the import a lot more. So that is probably one key difference across these data. The concept, China, in the context of the region, is a very important one. Australians are incredibly pragmatic in the sense that they are more than willing to continue trading with China. Really, what we see in these data is diversification. There is this, you know, 
great desire among Australian voters to diversify the trading portfolio of the country in order to sustain the Australian way of life, which they think is an excellent one, and to be able to kind of forge new partnerships, old partnerships with old mates, as we're talking about in this free trade deal, in order to be able to make sure that the situation that we're seeing with coal and with iron ore and with wine and so forth um, at the moment with China, this we don't get this um, leverage, this purchase that China can have. So I think that there is a, a, a big recognition in this country that that they need to do more in order to be able to get more mates um, to sell things to across the world. And I think this speaks really well to why one of the most popular objections to free trade is false and this idea of, well, you know, if, if you're exposing yourself more to exports and, and reliance on, on imports, then actually you're not able to be self-sufficient in times of crisis or when, say, a particular trading partner um, imposes crackdowns. And actually, the more free trade and the more diversity you have in your trading arrangements, of course, the better you are when it comes to weathering the storm when there is a disruption to trade with a particular country. And I think that what, what you've just said, it's clear that Australians can recognize that and, and that push for diversification of trade isn't just coming from a kind of uh, recognition that perhaps there's some some issues when it comes to trading with China, but also a broader narrative about actually making sure that there's resilience in the long run. And kind of coming off that, I guess, what, what do you think the most effective way is to communicate the benefits of free trade to the public? I imagine this is something that differs, obviously, between different countries. You mentioned that there's slightly different priorities or, or public awareness of the benefits of trade when it comes to the UK versus Australia. But are there any lessons we can learn about how best to communicate why free trade is so good? And I think like, the problem that we've seen with the narrative in the UK is kind of a classic example. You know, the media narrative has been one where it's actually protect farmers at all costs, but, but in the correct context, not actually true. So if we trigger the pride emotion in the sense which we say, well, actually, do you back British farmers to be able to kind of go on and make something of this deal? Actually, everyone's pro-free trade in that environment because we've got national champions. Right? As an industry, we can kind of get behind. In the context where someone might be harmed or people might lose their jobs and there's no other context, then clearly that's not going to be the case. Most people are going to get behind that. Most people, and I'm sure we'll come on to this later on the podcast, are end-focused rather than means-focused. So they need to have faith that the means basically going to deliver that. And I think the common understanding among Brits and Australians is that free trade as a means is a way of delivering economic strength, is a way of delivering better outcomes for people. Particularly in Australia, I might add, you know, they understand that you know exporting and trade with other countries is really good. They're not so narrowly minded that they want to be able to make everything in Australia. They do regularly do focus groups and bombing in Australia all the time, and you know, they do recognise they want to be a part of that. And there is an element of resilience narrative that's coming through. But the key, really, to kind of selling it is just reminding people about what that kind of shared goal is. The shared goal is to um, you know develop the economy shared goal is to make sure that we get access to fine Tim Tams directly from Australia and, and, and Australian beef as an alternative when you choose not to have a, a, some British beef. And, and that's incredibly popular. But in order to do that, you need to be not so narrow as focused on the protection narrative. You need to be focused on what the material benefits would be. The other clear indicator that I've seen from this is that it's not actually levers that need to be told, brought into this. Believers actually get it. They tend to be older. They tend to understand. They tend to be children of the 60s and 70s and 80s, which you know are um, 
basically kind of transitioning into kind of capitalism full-blown. So they kind of get this. But it's actually Remainers that need to be reminded of some of those mutual benefits. And when you discuss with Remainers the element that there may be free movement of people, we may be able to kind of draw on the the knowledge capital of Australians and Australians might be able to do likewise with Brits as well. That's where we get the uplift big time from Remainers. It's the on the personal connection. So probably slightly different strategy depending on who you're talking to, but generally it's focused on the ends, not the means. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the, the freer movement side of things is quite a good lever because one of the the popular things that comes up on on the Adam Smith Twitter feed, amongst other things, my own Twitter feed as well, is people kind of complaining about, well, you know, you you opposed the you opposed the European Union, and yet now you're calling for for free trade and and free movement, and it always fascinates me that that's kind of used as a a stick to beat pro Aus UK free traders with or pro Kansak people with as a, a broader thing as well because it's kind of proposing exactly what they want just with slightly different countries and there's almost an aspect of well how dare you you know support these things that we also support in a slightly different way there's a very tribal sense about it isn't there which yeah. i think is a bit unfortunate in which people are still hanging on to those leave remain divides and more or less because the australia trade deal has been coded by levers because it's backed by people like you know Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson or whoever else that there's these border opportunities that Remainers aren't necessarily strongly against the deal but there is definitely a segment of Remainers that are strongly against the deal and there's a segment of Remainers that are persuadable to support the deal if they think there are benefits and then there's probably a, even a majority of Remainers who, who would back the deal so it's, it's not the hardest task it's just about getting that super majority because you already have levers on side two-thirds or so of levers are, are going to back the deal, basically, no matter what. And then it's it's about bringing on that extra segment of the community and just making sure that it's a really broadly backed trade deal, which I think the government can absolutely do. I think no more was that kind of recognised in the question about how free the relationship should be with Australia. So the great thing for the UK is we've been talking about trade now for five years, right, post-Brexit in the UK. So that's a great yardstick. The, the relationship we have with the EU, should it be the same, should it be freer, or should it be less free? Now, virtually nobody says less free. So that's number one, right? It's, it should be as free as the relationship we've got with, the, with Australia. But the huge divide between Leave and Remain comes actually at that point. So Leavers say it should be freer, which, and, and Remainers say it should be basically the same as, uh, as the relationship is with the EU. So as, that's the, basically the backstop, and, and that's where you kind of see the biggest divide. Most others, as Matthew points out, actually, it, probably these reluctant Remainers, this group of people who voted Remain, but based on the economics that they thought were rational, they've probably come across now. Well, I think on uh, the kind of interesting note that we've we've actually ended up with a lot more support for greater freedoms amongst levers, but there's still plenty of persuadable remainers here to win over to the deal. We should move on to a broader conversation about some of the other uh, unusual political alignments and realignments that have taken place over the past decade or so. In the space of less than half a decade, a political earthquake has shocked parties from across the spectrum. We've witnessed working class voters catapult the likes of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, whilst the parties left cement their dominance among the professional class in cities. Michael, you've spent a lot of time on this topic. In fact, in a previous role at another research firm, uh, you wrote a report about fractured politics and, and analysing the new clans in British society. What do you think is, is fundamentally going on in politics at the moment? 
Uh, and, and what would you say is driving these kind of realignments that we're seeing? Something has been driving it. It's not been Brexit. It's, you know, it wouldn't have been Trump. Those things would be what we probably call kind of symptoms or, or catalysts of kind of division. But ultimately, you could probably look in the UK specifically, the land, electoral landscape uh, before 2014 and after 2014, I, I do mean 2014, not others, is very different. Brexit was obviously part of a deal that was based broken between kind of UKIP voters and the Cameron administration, right? It's about to have this referendum because they were worried about growing kind of electoral concerns. But Brexit sort of accelerated a resorting, if you like, of voters in Britain. It's not changed, fundamentally changed that landscape. That's more tectonic. It's been accelerated the kind of shift of what we'd say the radical right, those those people who are kind of economically left-wing but socially kind of right-wing, from the Labour Party to the Conservative Party, and those people that are cross-pressured in another way. So basically they tend to be economically more kind of right, but you know probably socially more left, moving from the Conservatives to Labour. And that's probably you know, the big divide that we're kind of seeing in recent years, and that's what's fundamentally kind of, you know, talk about the the red wall changing blue, that will certainly have played a part in it. And and the things that drive that are big macro factors. You know, if we you know, think about the fundamental things that have changed in the last 40 years rather than the last four, you know, they will be work life, you know, the changing nature of kind of work with less factory floor, more open plan office. Will be changing role of institutions. So institutions that are out are things like church, clubs, family and community. The things that are in are like things like universities, the media, particularly kind of 24-7 access to media, technology. These are the new institutions that sort of govern our lives. There's also globalization, which has been a force, which is climate change has now become a kind of an issue, which is cut across traditional party cleavages, immigration sort of splits the Labour Party and the Conservative Party as well. And then you've got technology. So the our networking ability has basically allowed us to select in on our friendship groups, the people that confirm our views based upon what our politics is. So I'd say those four fundamental factors have over the last 40 years just gradually changed the kind of polarity of the country and, and fractured it up into groups that are able to sustain themselves now. Mm. And this is a, there's an interesting story that effectively 50 or so years ago, you could more or less predict people's vote based upon their, their kind of class position. If you were working class, you voted to the left. If you were middle class, you voted to the right, you voted conservative. And, and that could explain the dynamic. And now you have a real fracturing, to, to use your phrase, of the electorate into these different segments where some people increasingly, particularly in the urban professional class, are voting very strongly on cultural matters, um, which has taken them off to, towards the left. And then in the working class, particularly the classic kind of red wall, non-suburban story, um, are increasingly voting for the right because they feel like they've been left behind by parties of the left that become more kind of liberal, global in their outlook and less patriotic, and they feel kind of insulted by that. But I think you're right that there's an extraordinary number of different kind of social and political and, and cultural winds going on, pointing in all sorts of directions that have pushed this realignment. Uh, so one of the things that I found really, I guess, again, coming from my, my more pessimistic stance here, a bit depressing about this realignment is that 
you've you've got uh, refocusing on the cultural axes over the economic axes as being one of the the primary identifiers of people's politics. And the problem here is that, at least in the case of the UK, neither major party represent the kind of view that I think we at the Adam Smith Institute tend to take, which is being on the more globalist side of the quote-unquote culture wars, but also being on the right economically. So we've got a party, we've got the Labour Party who are you know, fairly, I'm not sure how best to describe this, left-leaning or, or, or globalist or whatever on, on the culture war, but also still on the left economically. And then you've got the Conservatives who, who maybe are, are more uh, traditional on the, the culture war issues, but they're not, in my opinion, at least in many aspects of domestic policy, particularly right-leaning on the economy either. So there's this lack of representation when it comes to outward-looking globalist right-wingers in politics. And I mean, to some extent, that's always been the case, right? There's very little in the way of explicitly classically liberal or libertarian representation amongst parliament. There never really has been, although we'll, we'll get on to you know, an era where there was more representation when it comes to the right-wing economic side of this, certainly the free market economic side. But I worry that the kind of choice that will end up being the case, at least politically for free marketeers as well, you've got to choose which do you prioritize, culture or the economy here and obviously you know there are free marketeers who come from the more i guess traditional um anti-woke culture culture war side of things and they might take different stances on some of the key identifying issues like immigration for example or like criminal justice but i still think that broadly you, you can characterize the classical liberal movement as more globalist certainly than the rest of the right and we're kind of in a pickle now as to what the best way to, to represent our values is through the political process. Yeah, pickle's great. That's a great way to describe it because <laughs> ultimately you are kind of locked in that jar now, right? Because the mm. new coalition, the shift, this realignment won't have been favourable to the ASI it, because ultimately in the UK for social, social conservatism it dominates in the UK and always has done. In fact, every election, every, every coalition, electoral coalition that's won, so every government that's won has been socially conservative or centrist. They've never been socially progressive. So, you know, at least for the last 40 years. So, but, but on the economy, that has changed radically. You know, it's been pretty left, it's been pretty centrist and so forth in the way it's identified. You know, this is the voter base, right? Basically in a diagnosis that this realignment is actually not so helpful because the primacy now, the primacy driver of votes, and the most predictive thing, of people's voting behavior and your social values by a long way. I mean, by, you know, factor of 10 from, compared to most of the variables that we get. And certainly education, whether you go to university is part of that, right? And that kind of comes down to the shared social experience of going to a university campus and, you know, maybe some sort of social research, social uh, sciences or arts degrees and so forth. But, but there obviously will be other things. University cannot be the only institution that's doing that. It must be other things as well, right, which is allowing that to happen. And it's, it still remains a truth that the most people are in the middle somewhere. And that middle group, ultimately, the people that kind of decide elections. And what they don't tend to do, they don't tend to go too far left on social issues. But they will go pretty left on economic issues, right? And so that's become that comes where the electoral coalition is problematic. and the the current conservative government was able to identify that and spot the opportunity in kind of like the red wall to 
in the key drivers of modern politics in the UK, which is your social values, are better aligned with that group. How universal do you think this is, Michael? Were you just seeing this in the UK or are you seeing pretty similar features now that you're, you're down in Australia? It's not universal per se. So obviously it's, we haven't necessarily done this in kind of Asian, many Asian democracies and so forth. But certainly it's clearly the case in the United States, if not they're well, well, well into that and social values being the absolute predictor. In the UK, it's there as well. But, and it's there in Australia, for sure. It's evident probably a simple question about whether people kind of want to renationalize railways, right? Never have so many conservative voters wanted to renationalize railways and never have probably have so few Labour voters wanted to be able to do that, right? And so if, when that primacy is on the social, it's problematic, particularly to be able to kind of have a conversation about those things. And that's the reason why I think until that unhooks itself, it, at the end of the day, we're in a majoritarian electoral system. So is Australia, so is the United States. That means that you must form broad coalitions of parties that encompass kind of a wide group of voters. So until that either resolves itself, either by changing the electoral system, which I'm not necessarily in favour of, uh, or realigning those houses back onto the economy and economic preference, that will probably not be undone. So to kind of put on my my optimism hat for a change on, on this podcast, one of the things that springs out to me here is that if social values, as we're saying, are becoming more of the primary way that people align themselves, then does that not leave an opportunity for a particularly enterprising free marketeer to kind of go all in on the kind of anti-woke social values and use that as an opportunity to push through a more free market economic agenda, right? Because if, if we're saying that the kind of economic side of things, whilst there's depressing stats about support for renationalization amongst conservative voters, from our perspective, at least, that isn't as important for them, right, as some of the other social issues. So if if I, as a, as a party, wanted to come along and say, well, you know, we're going to be super tough on criminal justice and we're going to, you know, end up being a lot more restrictive on immigration or something, but we're also going to abolish corporation tax, then actually, I mean, extreme example here, but the broad principle is that, that in some ways this is actually opening up space for ideas of, of classical liberals, at least on the economic side of things, if not on the social one. Would you say that I'm onto something there? Am I actually, uh, should I go back into my miserly pessimistic corner? No, absolutely not. No, I think that's, um, I think that's definitely true. I think the key really to be able to kind of articulate the, the, the benefit of kind of free markets from a political context is going to be that they tr- trust, right? And, and so when you, the social values element is obviously moving to identity politics, which is all the, do I trust that this person speaks on my behalf and my values? So they can be the right carrier of that message for you, absolutely. And so while you have a conservative government and a leader who may be a free market, the trust of you know a large portion of the electorate, absolutely that is the case, that you can build out that that narrative and make the case again for free markets because you'll need what we call an industry permission space right so you uh, it's all well and good daniel uh, prior kind of going up and talking about free markets but if people don't want to listen to you they don't have to nowadays so you what you need to do is you need the permission to speak to them which is uh that they're kind of willing to listen and kind of change their mind for that and and that's the key is you need good leaders to be able to kind of then communicate that language effectively in order to be able to get people's buy-in so yeah that's exactly the starting point you're 
totally onto the right thing there. Well, I think we're going to come back to a little bit more thinking about how to talk and, and sell free markets in our next section. I'm just interested in just one final thought, though, on the topic of the power implications of this realignment we're seeing. Because I, I think there's a strong case that putting forward this thesis that effectively you've got younger professional voters who are quite dominant culturally and particularly within key institutions. So we're thinking about the civil service or the media or, or the art sector where, where you can have a lot of sway. At the same time, because the that kind of professional, highly educated class is not necessarily the majority of the country because we still have a majoritarian political system, political power goes to the right. So Boris Johnson is getting quite extraordinary majorities whilst the sense that amongst conservatives that they're, if there's a culture war, that they're losing it because the, the culture is going in the opposite direction. Now, I think amongst the general public, arguably, they're not losing the culture war and that the general public are, as you've said, a lot more conservative. But certainly the, there seems to be this, this weird kind of conflict going on between what a lot of key institutions want to do and say and what kind of political power and, and the broader general public might want to push towards. First of all, I would say that about these institutions is a lot of their power is actually shown to some degree. I mean, it's not news now to say that a lot of the traditional arts and media institutions are losing their power television is is dying and things like this this podcast uh youtube all the rest of it is in the ascendancy and they have lots of followers who are kind of listen and actually this is part of the story as well so people network they listen to the evan smith institute podcast pin factory and they will stick listening to that and they've chosen to be able to select in you know beforehand when there was two or three channels in immense power as the broadcaster so there, it is to some degree show but you are right also there's a lot of institutions are kind of misrepresented of that so we might have diversity of you know uh, demographic grouping but we don't necessarily kind of have diversity of views especially when views are very well aligned to certain kind of educational backgrounds and so forth so that is true and i think politicians do respond to the media journalists and how they portray things but the honest answer is is that people like me who advise politicians, advise political parties and so forth, are there to cut through that and give them a proper basis for what real people and um, what James Gallicasorian was talking about, uh, you know, kind of that min- middle centre ground voter he's been talking about recently, what they properly think about things. And they don't tend to be connected into these institutions anywhere near as much, actually the modern life for this middle ground kind of soft voter is more disconnected than it is connected to these groups they've unhooked themselves from these traditional sources and they're just focused in in their local community and their family and so forth so um that goes again to the importance of not necessarily listening to the twitterati or kind of your membership base who because of this fracturing of politics, are more likely to be very, very, very distant. There's a great piece of research that someone called Paula Surridge from, I think, Bristol University has done recently about where um, uh, voters basically place on the electoral spectrum. And if you look at where the Labour Party voters shifted in the country from 2005, it is shifted consistently to the left on social values over that period and got further and further and further and further away. And as that's happened, it's become even less electorally successful. And and that is not because the average person has done that. It's because the average person has stayed pretty much in the middle. 
and it's just that Labour has actually listened to its membership base in that period of time and then moved further away from where the electoral opportunity is. So, so I think, yes, institutions do matter, but they, we've got to be careful that we don't overblow their influence as well. It's a bit of balance here. Well, talking about electoral mathematics and persuasion, let's move on to our next topic about selling free markets. Does capitalism have a marketing problem? Between COVID, Brexit, Trump and Boris, it appears that the winds of change are blowing in a more interventionist direction around the world and in all areas of our politics and economics. So the kind of key question here and the first one I'm, I'm going to put to you, Michael, is what do you think is driving the renewed calls that we've been seeing for a much larger role for the state? Uh, and this is coming from both the left and the right. So COVID has has made, it's been the biggest advertisement for the state and state interventions for, for a long time. But I, I do also kind of think it's this kind of changing nature in relationship with some institutions also. What is the primary emotion i think in my head when when you know a pandemic is raging it's probably fear it's probably anxiety and so in that environment you know people are quite willing to take direction um, from the state and let them kind of intervene to be able to see what's best so yeah people talk about the gfc and whether that's kind of been instigator of kind of state intervention i'm not 100 sure that is the case actually i i do think with covid you know, health has possibly been securitized in a way that it wasn't previously. Um, so, yeah, I'd say it's definitely driving it. From your perspective, Matthew, I know you've been writing a lot about the problem that there doesn't seem to be at the moment, at least uh, a compelling free market counter narrative around COVID. Do you think that there there can be or, or actually are we onto a, a kind of losing battle here? Yeah, I, th- I think we're at the point where a bunch of different narratives have conveniently come together to, to point towards a bigger state. So uh, on the left, we've had the kind of rise of Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders pushing the Overton window in a more status direction. And even if, as Michael says, that's not necessarily the majority of the population or even anywhere near that, uh, it definitely changes the way people talk about politics at an elite level and has normalised the idea of, of bigger state intervention. You then combine that with this kind of sections on the right who are kind of the Trumpian, communitarian, whatever you want to call them, interventionist perspective that we need to intervene for our new working class base because I think there's obviously a myth that people have voted conservative for the first time because they want a bigger state when in fact I think you can probably sell something about opportunity aspiration a little bit more to those constituents. Now you've, you've already had those political winds blowing and then you get this completely, I mean obviously not for everyone completely unexpected but I think for, for most of us completely unexpected pandemic which has and even I think people who are broadly sceptical of, of the state, except the fact that there is a, a bigger role for the state during a pandemic. Uh, I even seem to recollect Milton Friedman himself saying, you know, usually the state should do almost nothing, exceptions being public health and, and pandemics uh, as one example. And, and there's a genuine sense in which the people who are already pushing for a bigger state, already pushing for certain changes for the way free markets and capitalism operate, I think the World Economic Forum, for example, are just using COVID in order to push that pre-existing narrative. And they're, they're using it as a, a form of confirmation bias, or they're using it very cynically as a manipulative tool in order to push for a bigger state. And 
in many senses, I think we're, there's a risk that we're learning the wrong lessons from COVID in a number of respects. The, the first one is that the state has saved us. Well, I think particularly in a lot of European countries and the US, where, which had extraordinary levels of state failure at the start of the pandemic, both in terms of a failure to protect the public on the borders and then a failure when it came to, to testing and tracing and, and both in US with the CDC and the UK with Public Health England, very much limiting testing to a small number of labs, blocking the private sector from being involved, and as a consequence, actually allowing the the virus to spread viciously, and then being very slow with with the kind of necessary interventions. I think you're seeing extremely state failure. At the same time, you've got this perception about globalization that, well, we've got an issue with supply chains around COVID. It's not ever particularly well explained since when you when you look at it close enough, you realize that, well, in fact, uh, although the 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 shelves emptied during the day, they were basically always refilled overnight. And we always got the food people needed and there were, were never major shortages. And that was because of global supply chains, because the UK is able to depend on so many different places for its food, for example. So I think there's a there's a bit of a narrative issue that those on the free market side are struggling to push back against because of those pre-existing ideological pressures. And there's a lot of work to be done thinking about how we talk about what has just happened and and then in response to that, what happens next. I think there's another narrative that is quite important, which is if we're going to recover from this crisis, we actually need more dynamism, more entrepreneurialism. We need the private sector to come back. Yes, the state has done a great job with the furlough scheme, keeping people in jobs, but now we actually need some people to lose their jobs because certain jobs aren't going to be there in future. And we also need new jobs created and new opportunities for people at the same time. And I think that is politically very hard to sell because because people are resistant to change, definitely resistant to losing their job, but at the same time, very important and therefore very important about how we think and talk about these issues so that we don't prevent that change, so we don't have excessively high taxes and excessive regulation that prevents the kind of dynamism that will make us richer in the medium to long term. Yeah, it's, it's ironic that in some ways we've had a reverse Friedman here where the state is intervening in everything except when it comes to public health and, and pandemics, at least effective intervention in the early stages of things. And we, we mentioned earlier the huge support for, for renationalization of the railways. And this is one of the classic examples that, that makes free marketers such as ourselves a little bit worried that actually the public are as skeptical of capitalism as as our worst fears uh, seem to suggest. But do you, do you think this is true on a broader basis? I mean, the first section of this podcast, we're talking about huge support for a free trade deal. It certainly seems more complex than just a question of, well, do, do people support capitalism or not? It, it seems more granular based on, on different issues. But I guess like broadly from from polling perspective of the general public, uh, do you think that there is still a significant amount of support, at least in the UK, for for capitalism broadly construed, or is it just a case of we you shouldn't use the C word here? I think it's, it's a good way to put it, yeah, certainly. Brand capitalism uh, has got negative connotations for the majority of politics, but the, the pillars of capitalism absolutely not fundamentals of it. So, and, and, and like just going back a tiny bit to what Matthew was talking about, I think that was an ex- excellent piece of analysis in the sense that the fundamentals of this is you know, thank goodness for pharmaceutical companies. Thank goodness for kind of innovative tech companies able to kind of have this conversation kind of halfway across the world, right? With one level, we've never become kind of better Zoom users, right? And we needed it in order to function. So you don't kind of get that. And the, the point what is is because the people that have the microphone at this point, we only have so much mind space, right? We have so much share of mind that can be taken up with the information. The people that have that microphone and access to that is government. And when they get out of the way, what will come back is innovation and companies. So, so it will come back to be more focused back on capitalism again. But 
the things that need to happen is the storytelling. Right? It needs to be able to kind of tell, tell a convincing story. There needs to be the means behind it, and it needs that clarity and consistency. And the, the, the thing that Matthew was talking about earlier on is, well, there was kind of clarity on kind of like the big state side. Right? We needed to act in order to be able to solve this. That's going to kind of make things simpler and kind of less chaotic and so forth, right? So, And, and that's not necessarily been there um, during the pandemic. Yeah, I, th- I think there's quite an interesting point that, that you made to me, Michael, when we were talking on the phone a f- few days ago, which was that people tend to, in their heads, really are capitalists. When when push comes to shove, uh, they're Ubering around, they're trying to minimise their taxes, they are influenced by incentives. Incentives really do matter. Whilst in their heart, they don't like the kind of roughness of capitalism. They don't like the idea of, know, winners and losers and risks and dynamism and change and all all the potential risks that come with that kind of society and they push towards stability and they push towards niceness and caring and fairness. And therefore, capitalism is by default at a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to selling a public message and we have to push back through that and we have to speak to people's heads or, in fact, we have to speak to their hearts using kind of interesting and, and dynamic ways in order to connect their hearts to where their heads really are and make explain those arguments to people. Absolutely. You have to be a very good communicator to communicate on behalf of capitalism. And that's why so few people can do it. And, and actually, it takes thinking back to, to men and the leaders, which I'm sure we'll come up to in a bit. Very few can actually articulate that kind of story. And you do need that kind of common goal and vision to, be able to kind of get there. And then people do fundamentally believe in the means of capitalism to kind of get them there. They, you know, free enterprise and uh, free markets is efficient and it delivers them. I mean, no one wants to pay more than they need to. It's a little secret. I used to work for the Labour Party back in the day, and the Labour Party wanted to be able to charge people more for stuff, to get access to the same stuff. They didn't want to pay. They said, oh, do you mind if we want to put taxes on other people? Of course. Do you want this free thing? Of course. Right? Do you want to pay X, which will knock off your disposable income by X? No, they don't want to. And actually, people's behaviour is certainly very free market. We, we witness it and we observe it in the data and there's a there's a disconnect between certain groups some people call them champagne socialists or whatever but ultimately this group they they behave like an uber capitalist right they are calling in an uber eats or deliveroo they are traveling uh via uber to somewhere they've ordered off amazon they want to be able to kind of make sure they're not paying too much for whatever the kind of the, the services that they're providing and so forth they love the benefits of it but from the moral perspective from that don't want to admit to it. So it definitely does have an image problem. And I think that's the reason why you need to be kind of forward thinking and thinking more about innovation and more about what the kind of benefits of that can do, particularly the message about unleashing potential. It's a very, very effective message because it's one of the things that basically helps tap into a kind of key emotion, usually pride or kind of happiness, right, which is a trigger for kind of action. So, So yes, it does have a communication problem, but often we can kind of get around that if we're kind of quite sophisticated in the kind of analysis and strategy that we can put. Are there any examples that spring to mind when it comes to communicating capitalism, especially to say red wall voters in the UK? What what sort of narratives or stories can we tell? And, and also, and you, you mentioned we'd get onto this, what are the past historical examples of successes here? Obviously, Thatcher is the key figure that springs to mind when it comes to communicating capitalism to working class voters. Is there perhaps something we can learn from her administration and prime minister, prime ministerial period here? I like to think about this thing in terms of emotions, right? So 
often in order to be able to kind of get people to jump off and act in advertising, try to tap into certain emotions. The, the most commonly used emotions in advertising are, is pride number one. And then probably after that, it will probably be fear, actually. And fear, fear is the thing that makes you buy insurance and all that sort of stuff, you know, that we don't want to pay for, right? Pride is normally the kind of thing that makes you buy, you buy a particular brand of cheese or whatever, right? And so certainly will it would have been pride, right? It would have been the stuff that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which was saying, right, on social value, is that a way to navigate it, to be able to kind of make the case for free markets, capitalism, and so forth? Yeah, absolutely, because you, what you need is a common understanding in order to be able to exchange freely with one another and trust that people are going to have the same rules of the game. In a chaotic world where you trust one another, you don't trust institutions, you can't have a fully functioning market economy. So uh, what you need is to be able to kind of get that common sense of pride back. I think that that was the message. It was saying... The potential is everywhere. It's not just in London and Westminster. The potential is in the North, is in Blackburn, is in Yorkshire, is in everywhere, right? And we just need to unleash that in order to be able to get what we need. So that that's probably the contemporary example. I think probably Thatcher's example probably also was a pride element, but perhaps there was an element of forgetting the conditions, right? We're out of context here, which is that after the 70s, the conditions for change were right. <laughs> so people probably would listen to any idea as long as it was different, given that things were kind of things were piling up high and so forth, right, and strikes. I, but I, I do think, again, with that, it was a common, it was a clarity and a common sense of vision. And it, it, clarity is actually the simplicity of the message that you're delivering with the determination and focus in an environment which is increasingly noisy is absolutely important. So overcomplicating it by talking about supply chains and benefit of X and Y, it's not going to cut through. What you need is something which is interpretable, like a, a story or a vision, which is common. This is usually why we link, link it around the flag in order to be able to kind of anchor that to. And that's what successful deliverers of capitalist free markets will be able to do. I think there was quite an interesting video that was released, I think it was at the end of 2019, maybe early 2020, with a red wall voter discussing why they flipped his vote to the Tories. And he, he basically says, you know, I'm, I work in class, work a pretty manual job, but, you know, I have aspirations. I want to start a business. I want to, you know, get out there and, and do something, you know, big and important with my life. And of course, then Boris shows up and they have a nice chat and they thank him. But I just thought that the language he was using about, the opportunities he wanted, the aspiration he had, is something that's, that's very important and almost under-discussed because I think there's this temptation with red wall voters to see them as these kind of one-dimensional big state. They just want the government to invest in their areas and, and spend money. Now, speaking to, to red wall MPs, which we occasionally do, I don't actually get that sense that all they want is more money. They want pride for their areas. I think that's absolutely right. But they don't necessarily just think that comes from a state handout. They're still fundamentally, they're Tories, but also they're, they're from their areas and they understand that and they've had this before. They had this under Blair and Brown. And just throwing money at the problem isn't going to work. And what you need is really private sector investment and entrepreneurial ventures that, that give people a sense that their, their geography is coming back. And I think it's quite difficult because, practically speaking, a lot of the modern economic activity happens in cities and there's amalgamation effects and scale is very important. And therefore, you're pushing back against some fundamental economic wins here. And you're making some political promises that might be economically quite challenging. And, and that's going to be something government's going to have to, to face uh, at the next election if people don't feel like their lives have really improved and they don't feel like they've got any more opportunities. It's just the same old stuff. The reason why they 
flipped from Labor because they just felt they were sick of Labor. They had enough. They, they kept getting all these promises and weren't getting anything. The Tories can't be the same. Otherwise, they'll, they'll lose their voters as well. and they, they just won't show up. I think just to kind of conclude here, because I re- realise we're running slightly short on time, one of the things that's come out to me from this conversation is that actually it seems very difficult to create any sort of mass electoral or, or public movement for brand capitalism, as you called it, Michael, and actually the kind of the very nature of the ideas of capitalism makes it very difficult to to portray that ideology uh, as a narrative that can appeal to, to hearts and minds, certainly in the UK at the moment, but probably for, for a very long time indeed, both here and abroad as well. Would you say that that's a kind of accurate characterization? Because it's kind of, on the one hand, it's a little bit depressing that we, we, we will never have a, a huge constituency of people who stand up and love free markets and talk about how how corporation taxes are terrible, etc. It seems like something that's uh, that's never really going to happen, but also a, an opportunity when we think about the ways we can persuade people on these individual issues. Well, we're going to actually take a slightly different view. I think we can embed mm. that kind of cultural view in the UK. I think as we've started this podcast, we can kind of close it in the sense of saying that Australia has a lot to teach the UK when it comes to beating the drum for capitalism over here. You have to fill in a tax return. It's the law. Everyone does. People are kind of more entrepreneurial. There's more entrepreneurial speak. And that's kind of like systematic part of living in Australia. And it's part of the culture and discussion. We've all got to understand what's acceptable and, you know, and, and kind of think about ourselves in enterprising ways. And the narrative here in Australia has very much been one about how the private sector is the thing that's going to kind of lift us out of this recovery it's not necessarily going to be the state and uh, australians get it and they and they back it so we may be some time away from what's coming uh, what's already appearing in britain i don't know but as it stands right now you know certainly australia does have healthy markets running through its veins and you know perhaps the, the uk can look to australia for other things to be able to copy lift and kind of implement Oh, on the heartwarming note that I, for one, would be very happy if the UK was a little bit more Matthew Lesh and a little bit more Michael Turner. I think it's time to come to a conclusion for this week's podcast. So thank you very much for listening to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us, my co-host, Matthew Lesh, and guest for this episode, Michael Turner, head of research at CT Group's research and strategy business. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And we will see you again next week. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.